uh, to Jeremiah chapter 43. Jeremiah chapter 43. We're also going to cover verse, uh, chapter 44 as well. But the title tonight is Jeremiah is Challenged, Israel is Punished. We've now come to the last section of prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. And it has prophecies during, or it contains prophecies during Jeremiah's last days in Egypt. And it covers chapters 43 to 51. Chapter 43 and 44 are Jeremiah's words to the remnant in Egypt. Verses 1 through 3 covers the people's rejection of Jeremiah's advice. So let's begin in chapter 43 with verses 1 through 3. And it says, Now it happened, when Jeremiah had stopped speaking to all the people, all the words of the Lord their God, for which the Lord their God had sent him, sent him to them, all these words, that Azariah the son of Hoshea, Johanan the son of Kareah, and all the proud men spoke, saying to Jeremiah, You speak falsely. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, Do not go to Egypt to dwell there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has sent you against us to deliver, deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may put us to death or carry us away captive to Babylon. So as soon as Jeremiah finished speaking his message, Azariah, Johanan, and all the proud men responded to Jeremiah, you speak falsely. They flat out denied that the Lord had sent Jeremiah to talk to them, to talk them out of going to Egypt. Jeremiah have, uh, had often been accused or had often accused others of lying. And now they're saying the same thing about Jeremiah. You would think that the people would be willing to believe Jeremiah, what he had said. You know, his many warnings about Jerusalem's destruction, you know, uh, would be proving that he was a true prophet. Jer Jerusalem's destruction should have been all the proof that they needed, proving that Jeremiah really was a true prophet of God. But some of them might have thought that, that you know, Jeremiah may have been a Babylonian supporter who didn't want them to escape uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's retaliation for Gedaliah's death. Others had already made up their minds that they were going to go to, G, uh, to Egypt even before they were talking uh, with Jeremiah. They wanted the pots filled with meat. They wanted all the bread that they could eat in Egypt like their ancestors had done back in Exodus. They hoped to find peace in Egypt. They hoped to find everything that they needed in Egypt. And Jeremiah repeated the warning in verse 2, do not go to Egypt. But you know, it, it's when we want something bad enough and it's contrary to God's word, boy, we'll look for all the loopholes. We tend to deny God's word when we want something bad enough and it's contrary to God's word. Just like in the Garden of Eden, when Satan told Eve, you know, that, that you know, uh, you know, first what Satan did first with, with Eve he created doubt about God's words. In Genesis 3, he said, you know, did God really say? And then he totally denied God's word. In Genesis 3, 4, God didn't say. 
And then finally, he made sin and rebellion look attractive. He came uh, with, at her with a strong delusion. The people accused Baruch of stirring up Jeremiah against them to hand them over to the Babylonians in order to kill them or to take them into exile in Babylon. Their accusation against Jeremiah suggests that they believed that he was Baruch's puppet, or at least he was, uh, Jeremiah was under Baruch's control. The statement, Baruch has set you against us, suggests that Baruch was more than Jeremiah's scribe that he was seen as a person of influence and maybe with personal ambition. They were so sure that God was wrong about what Jeremiah had said that God said, and they were right that Johanan and his friends basically told, uh, told Jeremiah, you're a liar, Jeremiah. You're a false prophet, and God did not send you or speak to you. So again, they were so sure that God was wrong and that they were right, they just flat out called Jeremiah a liar, a false prophet. God didn't talk to you or, or send you. Now, that must have really bummed out Jeremiah when he heard these false accusations that were being made about him, and especially from his own people, who he had suffered so much for, who he cared so much for. But in spite of everything Jeremiah had done for his people, he was now accused of being like the false prophets whose lies had led the nation into ruin. Johanan even accused Baruch of influencing Jeremiah. And even though it's hard to understand what kind of special power Baruch could have possibly had over this courageous prophet, but they had to blame somebody. So they went to the land of Egypt, verse 7 says. And once again, God's people walked by sight and not by faith. And then verses 4 through 7 covers the journey to Egypt. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. So Johanan, the son of Korea, all the captains of the forces and all the people would not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to dwell in the land of Judah from all the nations where they had been driven. Men, women, children, the king's daughters, and every person whom, Neb whom Nebuzaradan, the captain, of the, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. So they went to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they went as far as Tophanes. So Johanan and those going with him broke their promise. To obey the Lord's commands that was given through Jeremiah, chapter 42, verse 5. Instead, they led, the, all, they led all the remnant of Judah, all the people that were left in Judah, they led them away. Those who had returned to live in the land of Judah. They took all of those who King Nebuchadnezzar had left with Gedaliah, and they also took Jeremiah and Baruch. Now, we're not sure if Jeremiah went voluntarily or if he was forced against his will to go with them. Most likely, Jeremiah was forced to go because Jeremiah wouldn't have willingly disobeyed God's command to stay in Judah. Jeremiah was learning a tough lesson here that God had to teach him or tried to teach him years earlier. And that is the reward for faithful service may even be more difficult service in the future. 
Jeremiah was told in chapter 12, verse 5, Jeremiah, if racing against mere men wears you out, how in the world will you race against horses? If you stumble and you fall on open ground where there's no obstacles in your way, what will you do in the brush near the Jordan? So, so Jacob's descendant, descendants, they went back to Egypt after being freed from there. The land of bondage, one, hundreds of years earlier. Then in verses 8 through chapter 44, it covers Jeremiah's message in Egypt. So let's look at verses 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Toponese, saying, Take large stones in your hand and hide them in the sight of the men of Judah in the clay in the brick courtyard, which is at the entrance to Pharaoh's house in Toponese. So the Lord tells Jeremiah to perform a symbolic act while the Jews were watching. The Lord told Jeremiah to take some large rocks, bury them under the pavement stones at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace here in Toponese. Look at verses 10 through 13 now. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden. And he will spread his royal pavilion over them. When he comes, he shall strike the land of Egypt and deliver to death those appointed for death. And to captivity, those appointed for captivity. And to the sword, those appointed for the sword. I will kindle a fire in the houses of the gods of Egypt. And he shall burn them and carry them away captive. And he shall array himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd puts on his garment. And he shall go out uh, from there in peace. He shall also break the sacred pillars of Beth Shemesh that are in the land of Egypt and the houses of the gods of the Egyptians, he shall burn with fire. So Jeremiah tells the people of Judah, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies is going to do, the God of Israel. He says, I will certainly bring my servant, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, here to Egypt. I'm going to set his throne over these stones that I have hidden. And he's going to spread his royal canopy over them. And when he comes, he's going to destroy the land of Egypt. He's going to bring death to those destined for death. He's going to bring captivity for those who are destined for captivity and war to those destined for war. And he's going to set fire to the temples of Egypt's gods. He's going to burn the temples and carry the idols away as plunder. And he's going to pick clean the land of Egypt like a shepherd picks fleas from his cloak. And he himself will leave unharmed. He's going to break down the sacred pillars standing in the temple of the sun in Egypt. And he's going to burn down the temples of Egypt's gods. So just like other symbolic acts, the interpretation was given. And it was symbolized, all right, the destiny of the exiles in Egypt, along with Egypt's destiny at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. God was going to bring King Nebuchadnezzar to Egypt where he would set his throne, according to verse 10. And the throne would be placed on the same stones he said, I have hidden there or buried there. So the message was clear. In other words, it was no use to take off to Egypt because King Nebuchadnezzar would chase them to Egypt to the very place where Jeremiah had hidden the stones. Jeremiah described the disaster that Nebuchadnezzar would create in Egypt by his invasion. 
He was going to bring death. He was going to bring captivity and the sword to those who are destined for those things. He was going to set fire to the temples of the Egyptian gods. He was going to carry their gods away and he was going to put, on, he was going to put them on a disgraceful display in a triumphant victory procession in Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar's victory over Egypt would be as easy as a shepherd, he says, wrapping his garment around himself. So Nebuchadnezzar would rob Egypt of its riches like a shepherd would pick lice from his garment. And so there wouldn't be much resistance and Nebuchadnezzar would leave Egypt in peace. Nebuchadnezzar was going to destroy the sacred pillars in the temple of the sun in Egypt or the house of the sun. Uh, Heliopolis was the city of the sun uh, and it was the center of sun worship in Egypt. And then Nebuchadnezzar did invade Egypt in his 37th year between uh, in 586 to 567 B.C. Chapter 44 verses 1 through 14 covers the condemnation of idolatry in Egypt. So let's look in chapter 44 now beginning with verses 1 through 3. And it says, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews who dwell in the land of Egypt, who dwell at Migdal, at Tophanes, at Noph, and in the country, country of Pathros, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and on all the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them. Because, here's why, of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger, in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they did not know, they nor, nor, they nor your fathers. So this message, now, it sounds like the one that he just gave in chapter 43, but it's not. This isn't a continuation of the one given uh, to those who went to Egypt in verses 8 through uh, 13 of chapter 43. It was for all the Jews living in Egypt who had settled there over a long period of time. Jews were already living there before Jerusalem fell. And Jeremiah reminded them about the terrible destruction that the Lord brought on Jerusalem and all the towns of Judah. He had punished them. Why? Because his people, they burned incense to other gods. And his people served them. You know, he says the words to burn incense in verse 3, it can also mean to offer sacrifices of animals. Let's look at verses 4 through 6 now. However, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness to burn no incense to other gods. So my fury and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they are waste and desolate as it is this day. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you a man and woman, child and infant out of Judah, living none to remain? So he reminded them that he had sent his servants, the prophets, he said, I sent them rising early and sending them. This means I sent them to you again and again and again. And I sent them to you to warn you not to worship and serve other gods. God called their kind of devotion, notice, what? Abominable. 
Their kind of worship was detestable. And it was something that God hated. But though he warned them, the warnings were useless. The people, it says, notice, didn't incline their ear. They didn't pay attention. They didn't listen, nor did they abandon their worship of other gods. So what did God do? He poured out his wrath on Jerusalem and the towns of Judah and made them deserted ruins. Let's look at 7 through 8 now. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel. Why? Notice, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves? Notice, it was against themselves. They were hurting themselves and worshiping these false gods, these idols. He says, why do you commit this great evil against yourself to cut off from you man and woman, child and infant out of Judah, leaving none to remain? In that you provoke me to wrath with the works of your hands. Notice burning incense to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have gone to dwell that you may cut yourselves off and be a curse and a reproach among all the nations of the earth. So God begs his people, don't repeat the disaster that had happened to Judah. He said, if they continued in their idolatry, the whole nation would be destroyed and there would be nobody left. There wouldn't be a remnant. And God wants to know. He says to them, why do you provoke me to anger by making idols with your own hands or burning incense in Egypt? Why do you provoke me? And he says, if you continue to do so, he says, I'm going to cut you off. They cut themselves off. In other words, they destroy themselves and they become a target of cursing and ridicule among the other nations. Verses 9 and 10. Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah, the wickedness of their wives, your own wickedness and the wickedness of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not been humbled to this day nor have they feared, have they not walked in my law or in my statutes that I set before you and your fathers. You know, it's, it's hard to believe that they, they could forget the lessons from their past history. I mean, could they really forget what had happened to their ancestors, their rulers, and then themselves for the wicked things they did in Judah and Jerusalem? In spite of what had happened, There was no sign that they humbled themselves. They didn't show any reverence for God. They didn't obey the law. They had no humility. There was no reverence. There was no walk with God. Look at 11 through 14. Therefore, as a result of what he just said in verses 9 through 10, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for catastrophe and for cutting off all Judah. And I will take the, re- the remnant of Judah who have set their faces, that is, who have already determined, uh, who have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to dwell there, and they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine. They shall die from the least to the greatest. In other words, nobody will be spared by the sword and by the famine. And they shall be an oath and astonishment, a curse and a reproach. For I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. So that none of the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt 
<clears throat> to dwell there shall escape or survive lest they return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return and dwell for none shall return except those who escape. Because there was no sign, no sign at all that the present generation was going to repent, the Lord announced his determination to bring disaster on them. He said in verse 11, I, because he says, you've set your face against me. He says, I will set my face against you. Their punishment is described in verses 12 through 14 here. Those who set their faces against God there in verse 12 and decided, hey, we've already made up our mind. We're going to go to Egypt. We're going to settle down there. He says, you're all going to die there by the sword and by famine. The people had made up their mind. They were determined to have their way. God was just as determined that they would suffer the consequences for the rebellion. He was going to punish them in Egypt with the sword, with famine, and with plague, just like he had punished Jerusalem. And he said, none of those who went down to Egypt are going to escape his wrath. And none of them are ever going to return to Judah. And even though they would want to return to Judah... None would ever return except for a few fugitives. You see, God saw that there was no hope for building the future on those that were left in Judah or Egypt. The future would be with the exiles in Babylon. And then in verses 15 through 19, these verses cover their faithfulness to the queen of heaven. Look at verses 15 through 18. Then all the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods with all the women who stood by, a great multitude, and all the people who dwelled or dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros, answered Jeremiah saying, notice, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. They just straight up said, we're not going to listen to you. But we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Notice, for then, you know, when they were worshiping these false gods, for then we had plenty of food. We were well off and we saw no trouble. But since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven... And pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. It says, now the men and their wives who had been listening to Jeremiah's warnings responded to Jeremiah. And their response was definite. Jeremiah, we are not going to listen to you. Not only that, they defiantly said, we are certainly, notice in verse 17, we are certainly going to do whatever has gone out of our mouth. In other words, we are going to do everything that we said we were going to do. They vowed to burn incense to the queen of heaven. They vowed to pour out drink offerings to the queen of heaven like they and their ancestors used to do. The men and women listening to Jeremiah tried to defend their sins by calling on experience. And many times we do. They use the practical argument. If it works, hey, it must be right. If it works, it must be God. Because when they lived in Judah, 
They secretly worship and, and were secretly worshiping the queen of heaven, which is Astarte or Ishtar, which is the goddess of fertility. They were saying when we, wor- when we uh, worshiped her, everything was going so good. Man, we had plenty of food. We enjoyed comfortable conditions. Ah, oh, the good old days. And how many times do we say, oh, the good old days. Remember back, we had it so good. The fallen mind, the sinful mind is always ready to assume that God is the enemy, that it's God's fault. And we blame Him for our past, and we don't trust Him for our future. But when King Josiah made the people give up their idols, things began to get worse for them. So what's the natural conclusion? Hey, we were better off serving the Queen of Heaven. You know, it was better serving her than it was King Josiah. It was better off when we disobeyed God and we worshipped idols. That's the way they saw it. It seems that the idols had done more for them than the living God. That was the way they saw things. And it was the women who seemed to lead the way in practicing idolatry, and their husbands went right along with them. The women made vows to worship Astarte, and their husbands gave the okay, according to verses 24 through 26. Now, according to Jewish law, in Numbers chapter 30, verse 3 through 16, if the husband approved his wife's vow, it was okay. It was okay to do. So when the wives burned incense, poured out drink offerings to the queen of heaven, and made cakes to her to worship the queen of heaven, the wives were saying, hey, my husband said it was okay. So in their minds, Jeremiah, you have no right to interfere or condemn what we're doing. And the husbands told Jeremiah, hey, we don't care what you said, Jeremiah. We're going to worship Astarte just as they had done in Judah so they would be sure that things would go good for them. So you see, their reasoning was the worldly idea that it pays off to worship the right God. And that's why the question of why a person serves God has been asked through the centuries. Satan asked God in Job 1 9, does Job fear you for nothing? In other words, Job's serving you, Lord, because you, 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 you give him everything. You know, why, who wouldn't serve you if, if you gave them everything? And we know that's not true. But that's what you know, many people believe. Peter complained. We have left all and followed you, Lord. Before, uh, be, uh, therefore, what shall we have? Notice that, Matthew 19, 27. Lord, we left everything, man. We follow you. So what do we get? You see, there's a string attached. James and John, they wanted privileges, privileged positions in the kingdom of heaven. In Mark 10, 37, they said, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Followers of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel ignore promises like in the world you will have tribulation, John sixteen thirty three. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God, Acts fourteen twenty two. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, James one two. And do you think it's strange concerning the fire fiery trial which is to try you, First Peter four twelve. So again, they think, okay, it, it, whatever, you know, if I'm experiencing wonderful times and, and, and you know, everything is great and things are going smooth and, and, you know, and I'm not serving God, well, 
this must be the right way to live. And yet God tells us flat out that we're going to have difficulties in this world. He said, in the world you will. He doesn't say you might have tribulation. He said, we must, not maybe, through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. James said, count it all joy when you fall. You're going to fall into various trials. And Peter said, don't think it's strange which, uh, concerning the fiery trial, which is to try. It's going to happen. Verses 20 through 28 covers the condemnation of the people's decision, the one that they just made. Look at verses now, 20 through 23. So then Jeremiah spoke to all the people, the men, the women, and all the people who had given him that answer, saying, The incense that you burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your princes and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them and did not come into his mind? So the Lord could no longer bear it because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you committed. Therefore, your land is a desolation, an astonishment, a curse, and without an inhabitant as it is this day. Because you have burned incense and because you have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in his law, in his statutes, or in his testimonies. Therefore, this calamity has happened to you as at this day. Jeremiah and the people based their argument on the same principle, which was the issue here. And that is the belief that the future of the people of Judah and the land was based on worshiping the right God. But they came to different conclusions. You see, the people concluded that failure to worship the queen of heaven resulted in all of their problems. Jeremiah said, hey, all of your problems is because of your idolatrous practices and worshiping the queen of heaven. That's what's causing all your problems. And that's what's overwhelming you. When the Lord just couldn't take their evil doings anymore, when he says, you know what? He says, you know, he says, I'm going to make your land a target of cursing and I'm going to make it a deserted place. Now, God hadn't failed them. They failed him. The people failed God. That's why he couldn't bless them anymore. Verses 24 and 25. Moreover, Jeremiah said to all the people and to all the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all Judah, who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. And you will surely keep your vows and perform your vows. Jeremiah had a final word of judgment on the people who were in Egypt. The Lord said in verse 25 that the men and their wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands. And the, and the words fulfilled with your hands is you've shown by your actions, you've spoken what you were going to do, and you've shown by your actions that you are going to carry out your vows to worship the Queen of Heaven. God's patience with his people had come to an end. And now Jeremiah felt the same way. And in frustration, he said, go ahead. Go ahead with what you promised. Keep your words. Keep your vows. Now, don't take what Jeremiah said there to be it, that, that he's okaying what they want to do. Jeremiah is being sarcastic. How many times, you know, 
you know, you're dealing with a child and, and, you know, they just want to argue about what they want to do. And you say, well, you know what, go ahead, do whatever you want. You don't mean it, but it's, it, it, it's just a sarcastic, you know, remark. And, and that's what Jeremiah is doing here. You know what, that's what you want to do, go ahead. But again, he did not mean that. It was in frustration that he was going, he was saying, go ahead, do, what you, do whatever you promised, keep your vow. But again, Jeremiah meant just the reverse. It was as though he said, hey, I'm finally giving up on you. You've made your decision. Now, see what the consequences are going to be. Verses 26 through 28. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be named, notice, in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, The Lord, get, the, uh, the Lord God lives. Behold, I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end to them. Yet a small number who escaped the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah. And all the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to dwell there shall know whose words will, uh, will stand, mine or theirs. So as a result of their adultery, idolatry, the Lord swore, it says in verse 26, he said, I swear by my great name. All right. He says, I swear by my great name that none of the Jews will ever again call upon my name or use this oath. As surely, he said, as the oath, as surely as the Lord lives. They'll never use my name. They'll never use that oath again. He said, you know, according, he's swearing to himself. There was no greater name that the Lord could swear by than himself. By forbidding the people to call upon his name. And he was saying that a covenant relationship no longer existed between them. And they could never expect him to help them again when they called on him. They had given up that right and that privilege by breaking the, brace, uh, the basic rule of the Mosaic law in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 and 4, that says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. In the past, the Lord watched over the people to bring them good. But notice what he says in verse 7 now. He's going to watch over them to bring them adversity. Now he's going to watch over them to bring them harm. The Jews in Egypt will all be destroyed. Now, you know, we hear these things and we, we read these things and we say, man, God is just, he's a warmonger, man. He's harsh. He's mean. Don't take God's harshness as being mean and that God didn't care anymore. His punishment is proof that he does care because as the scripture says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And the calamities and the disasters that come are designed by God. And they're intended to bring us back to God and not to drive us away from Him. And God's announcement of judgment here is mixed with it, it's, it's mixed, it's tempered with a message of hope as well. Jeremiah's final word wasn't that everyone was going to be destroyed, but very few would be left. 
a remnant who would live to know whether it was God's word or the word of the rebellious people that would prevail. Let's close with verse 29 and 30. And this shall be a sign to you, says the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for adversity. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life. As I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy who sought his life. So verses 29 and 30 are a sign of punishment. God was going to do something that would show his power, his glory, and his authority. Jeremiah gave them a sign. He said, Pharaoh Hophra, who they were, who they were uh, trusting to take care of them, would be handed over to his enemies, just like King Zedekiah was handed over to King Nebuchadnezzar. And it was Her- Pharaoh Hophra who agreed to help Zedekiah against the Babylonians. And his help proved to be worthless. And historians tell us that a part of the Egyptian army revolted against Hophra, Pharaoh Hophra, and, and the general who stopped the rebellion was proclaimed king. And he reigned along with Hophra. But three years later, Pharaoh Hophra was executed. King Nebuchadnezzar then came on the scene and Jeremiah's other prophecy was fulfilled. Now we don't know what happened to Jeremiah. But we do know that Jeremiah had faithfully preached God's word. This is a reminder that it's the word of God that's important, not the one who preaches it. The ones who hear it are to repent and obey. Father, we thank you, as always, for your word, Lord. We thank you for the lessons that it teaches us, Lord. May we always be open to your word, God. May we always be open to your teachings, Father. Lord, may we not have to learn the hard way, God, through experience, Father, but trusting your word, knowing that, Father, what you say to us, the things you tell us, God, are for our good. As your word said just in in this passage, that that you, you were with us to do us good. But when we come to that place where we no longer want to obey your word, we no longer want to worship only you, Father, then that covenant relationship comes to an end. And then you are with us just to do us harm, God. So, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your wonderful word, Lord. We thank you for all that you are to us, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.